I thought I'd start with um, with just some introductions because what I'm, my plan is to release this audio at least in the Biota feed and possibly in other places as well. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to do is is to get you both to introduce yourselves, particularly because looking forward, I'm very interested in getting folks such as yourself and other folks in the Reddit community involved in this kind of broader artificial life audio recording project that I've been doing for you know the past how many years. Um, so why don't we start with with Iron Tom? Iron Tom, do you want to be known as Iron Tom for the purpose of this call? Sure. Um, I think maybe that's uh, <laughs> the easiest way to do it. Okay, um, so the NSA will never know who you are. Very good. No, <laughs> they, ha- they sure haven't been able to track that handle on. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so in terms of your interest in artificial life, when did you get started? What inspired you? And where are you currently? I, I, I've kind of approached this from the gaming perspective, which is, you know, like civilization, uh, strategy type games. And I've kind of looked at it like at the broader, like society, like aspect of it, as opposed to, um, automata. So I, I mean, I'm very interested in, you know, agent based modeling and such. And, um, back when I was in, uh, college, I took a class, uh, it was called the digital and experimental arts was the name of this uh, program at the University of Washington. And one of the courses there, uh, it was, we were kind of asked to come up with, you know, like what, what might life or what might art be like 50 years in the future. And, um, they started talking about, uh, you know, neural networks and automated agents. And the name Marvin Minsky came up and, I, I know I'd heard that name before. When I went home, I kind of remembered, oh, yeah, my uncle. So my uncle actually studied under Marvin Minsky, and um, his whole thing was always uh, automata and, you know, uh, agent-based modeling and stuff. And uh, I, I just sort of w- was interested in, in, that, in that sort of thing from that point on. I ended up doing uh, physics and astronomy instead of pursuing the, the digital experimental arts or ever even pushing things further with a life at that point in my life. But now I've sort of come circumspect and, and it just seems like now's the time to put all the pieces, all the branches of science that I partially understand together into like a simulation. So that's agent based modeling is required to do that sort of thing. And the current simulation that you're working on is it, it's a, uh, so the current thing that the project that I'm working on, uh, just for the point of explaining it to the listeners of this is I, about nine, nine months ago, I had like a post about kind of like how the accumulation of simulation and gaming is steamrolling towards kind of like these holistic universe simulations. And so I started a, a subreddit kind of dedicated to that, um, to, empower re- actually having a project to experiment with that sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of projects out there, but it was really cool to see like all those projects being shared in one spot and discussed. And it, sometimes it wouldn't be a whole project. Sometimes it'll just be like one paper or it just seemed like a cool place to, you know, initiate conversation based on just interesting resources that 
are churned up. And we even got a couple developers out of it across the country. And Tom, just if if Aaron comes online later, I'll I'll drag him in here. He's a he's a genius. He lives down in Fresno, and he he built sort of like a pro, uh, an agent based loosely in sim uh, processing the Java based language. And, and at some point, our project, which is in WebGL, will have agents and Automata and A-Life in it. Currently, we're just trying to get terrain and, and planets configured. We're using a, sort of like a JSON to talk in between different modules. And those, like one module will be planets, and it'll tell you, like, it'll make a ephemeris of all the different um, astronomic values, uh, you know, a semi-major axis, orbit, speed, phase. And then uh, there'll be other, his, the other aspect of that is terrain and having scalable terrain down to whatever level of detail you want to specify. And after we get that mapped out, because we're, you know, kind of building an engine from scratch, then we'll be able to, like, start putting agents in there and they'll probably start out pretty basic. But I'm excited to get to that point. That's really where I want to learn stuff. And yeah, so I, Tom Skazinski, to, to pass the torch over to him. <laughs> you, you, you've kind of done more stuff with agents with uh, your Zmerge project, right? Uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, it was more of a prototype kind of thing. I was trying to create something where I could show it off to people and then get get like an open source thing going on, but it never really lifted off the ground. But I I'm, I'm a, I talked to several interested people. So, I mean, that's how it builds. You have to just get more people interested and in, in, involved in various projects, and who knows what will come out of it, right? Um, but the, So I'll talk about my background. Um, I graduated at the University of Waterloo Computer Science Program. Now I work a day job as a web developer, so mostly front end. I've been a lot of, I've been, uh, I've read a lot of books by, by, um, like Seth Lloyd, Stuart Kaufman, Stephen Wolfram, and a lot of influence and inspiration comes from the ideas that all these people kind of present that, you know, kind of, you know, the simulism uh, arg- argument kind of thing where, you know, I'm really interested in simulations, so that's my sort of uh, take on it. And also genetic algorithms. I've always been interested in how all this novelty can be created. You know, this emergent novelty can be created just by some simple trial and error. And, you know, nature creates this in real life. And I've always wanted to see this in, in sort of like a simulation way. So a project or something that, you know, you, you create something and, and you see something like emergent aspect that, you know, a person would never be able to create themselves, but this thing just creates it out of, you know, just simple try and there, trial and error. So that, that's sort of what I'm interested in. Uh, agent based modeling, definitely. Um, uh, emergent computation. Um, and, and, and this is something in an email I was talking to, I am Tom, uh, that I would love to see down the road many, many years, uh, in the future, some sort of like a Manhattan style project creating like this amazing super simulation of, you know, something that is of, of a closely, uh, you know, m- mirrored version of reality, however big, however complex, you got to start somewhere. So <laughs> I would love to be involved in something like that. That would be fantastic. Maybe <laughs> I, it'd be cool. It'd be cool at some point if we like had enough 
people involved and, you know, had enough outreach. I don't know. I, I haven't, I don't know too much about a life, the, the organization, but it'd, it'd be really neat to have a, you know, a conference of some kind, or if I'm sure you've been to quite a few, uh, Tom Barbell, uh, with, uh, cause you've been, you've been, uh, demoing and, sh- and showcasing and working with a lot of people, uh, for a long time. And ha- what's the closest thing to like a conference on this sort of thing that you maybe have been part of? So it's an interesting problem, actually. I was going through the list of questions that you were to ask me, particularly associated with the high points of, of the things that I've done with Noble 8, but also some of the low points. And rather curiously, I had actually avoided academic conferences associated with artificial life up until last year. And it had such a strong negative emotional impact on me, actually, associated with attending this conference and meeting the academics and the people who I'd interviewed previously, and just getting a sense of, I don't know, the fact that probably we as individuals are better suited to creating these kind of goals than looking for any particular organization to represent these kind of interests. It is very, very curious. One thing I wanted to ask, um, Tom, for folks listening in, because we have a very broad audience, can you talk a little bit about the the kind of Reddit vernacular? Because you use the term subreddit, and for folks who aren't, like, clued in with, like, what Reddit is and how you create communities on Reddit and these kind of things, can you give kind of a potted introduction to that? Uh, certainly. So, uh, Reddit, I think it's been around since 2007. It's, it's, it's kind of changed over time, but essentially there are, it's, it works like a forum, but with voting. And it, it's kind of like aggregated social news and link sharing. So you have a subreddit, which is kind of like a sub forum where there's a specific topic and links are submitted. Uh, some have, they all have different rules based, like each, each section, each subreddit has its own set of rules. So some might only be images, some might only be text based or like discussion. There's, you know, there's everything from like relationships to, uh, uh, RWTF. And, uh, the R, uh, is, it's www.reddit.com slash r slash the name of the subreddit. So there are, when, when somebody says r gaming, they're talking about the community that's uh, slash reddit.com slash r slash gaming. And so if you go there, there will be a bunch of links and they, from video images, uh, all that sort of stuff, uh, memes, are <laughs> some there 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 there's definitely a culture to reddit that kind of is self-propagating and emergent in its own right <laughs> if we could simulate reddit um it, you'd br- probably break the internet but uh, <laughs> it it's it's a good place to share links and have discussion and the most valuable discussion gets voted to the top it's uh, very democratic I find there's a lot of sort of, I wouldn't say dissent, but just kind of like rebellious and, and uh, independent attitude that most Redditors have. And they will, so it's anonymous. It's, well, you can make it less anonymous, but generally you're, you have a username and it's not your real name. So you, you, 
there's less incentive to be kind to people sometimes. Well, no, I'm saying that I do that, but uh, you will get called out on your on on your. I don't, I don't know if you have to bleep that out later, but it's. Uh, I might. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm interested in this phenomenon because I guess my view is that, um, and I take a very strong view associated with this, and I've, I've written about it previously and talked about it a bit. That basically anonymizing intellectual pursuits actually works against, you know, long-term productive benefits. So, I mean, one of the things that has come through Noble Ape, and I don't want to preface any of the questions that you guys are going to ask me, is the ability actually to get a day job associated in some regard with what I've done through Noble Ape. And I think the interesting thing associated with anonymizing your interactions means that you'll always have a membrane between what you do on Reddit and the real world, so to speak, or the external world, or the employment world, or all these kind of things. And my view has always been that if you're not doing anything deeply nefarious, i.e., you know, well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's actually quite curious what that actually means now. But that using your real name and having a real identity that's actually accessible, that can, you know, enable you to create real world communities and propagate into the real world actually is a really positive thing. And when you try to anonymize yourself in order to interact in these kind of, I don't know, intellectual mosh pits and these kind of things, well, while that's fun on some level for a group of people... It doesn't actually solve a number of the problems that you're talking about associated with, you know, creating like Manhattan Project artificial life schemes in the future. In fact, what actually happens through these kind of networks is firstly, the artificial life community is, has historically existed online, has contained a large group of hobbyists, of which I think we're all probably consider ourselves hobbyists. And that in and of itself has been difficult to, for you know, academics, for example, to understand and interact with. But ultimately, you need buy-in from industry, academia, hobbyists, in order to get to the kind of Manhattan Project goals. And I guess I, I see Reddit in a very interesting sense, because, I mean, I think, firstly, it's wonderful that you guys have been able to start a community and talk about agent-based modeling and simulation and artificial life and all this kind of good stuff, because I've certainly, I mean, I pulled a forum together called Freshlim org maybe two or three years ago to try to capture some of the energy online associated with these kind of things but it is interesting that you've been able to create a, a self-perpetuating community through reddit but you also i mean your your simulation project is also the name of the reddit group fundamentally isn't it iron tom isn't that the yeah so it's uh we're, i mean we kind of we don't have. We're kind of loose with how we've titled it. Like the the repository itself is called WebHex Planet because initially we were going to try to port a different library. Uh, oh, there was a Hex Planet like just a little open source thing on SourceForge, and then we were going to try to port to WebGL, and it sort of evolved from there. And so we, we've kind of kept our organization just called our Simulate. But then uh, Aaron sort of developed this. This, this web API, and so that's kind of been called Metasim, but to be fair, we haven't really put too much thought into, you know, the the branding and the, adver you know, how what we're going to call it and what, what it'll actually be. And so th there's kind of like a twofold aspect to the Reddit, which is, 
the subreddit, which is uh, part of it. We will just submit generic links, and part of it's kind of dedicated to the project. And I I found a way recently to be able to tag and to tag submissions based on what they are and their categories. I think it's actually better to have a central place where you have both of that, both of those types of links versus earlier I, I had tried to make a separate uh, subreddit dedicated only to the project, So, which had mixed results. But it's funny that you mention anonymity as kind of detrimental to progress. And I would argue that I, I would actually agree in some respects that yes, uh, it, I feel like everybody who's contributed to the project has kind of, we, we personal, we send a personal message on Reddit and trade emails and, and then talk through Gchat and talk about each other's lives and, like we actually, the anon- we pull down the anonymity barrier to work on the project together, but it kind of it's the anonymity of Reddit and just the attraction of you know browsing through links and kind of killing time and like wow that's really cool and I have these skills I should I should let these guys know I want to help. So it's it's kind of been in a strange way it's kind of helped recruit and and you know people will gladly exchange or, or remove their anonymity once you start working together. And, uh, I, I think long-term I, I, I have a domain and I, I kind of have some designs for what would be like, kind of like a project based, a project tool to like manage different aspects of, of the simulation, like where it connects to academia, where it connects to gaming, where it connects to that sort of thing. And just sort of have like a responsive JavaScript front end where you can drag and drop assets and see the flow of money and the flow of work and and then have it integrated into like several different things, several different web APIs, whether it's Facebook or Google or live. And, and then have kind of like the thing about Reddit I think that makes it more powerful than Facebook is that it you can you can like Facebook has likes, but it, they don't really have up or down votes. So that it's uh like you can filter out the bad stuff and you can remove it really easily on Reddit versus Facebook and not everybody participates on Facebook. And there's a, there's a large group of developers that for some reason just don't like Facebook. They don't use it. And I guess most everybody should be on LinkedIn if they're a professional developer, but yeah, I, I really want to have a tool that would use an API to connect to all those things, allow anonymity if you want it, or if you don't, or if, and you could retroactively claim, so you could take the risk. You could work on a project anonymously, and then if it's successful, <laughs> then you can reveal like your your triumphs. But uh, just having a, a like some sort of website that allows project management and integration to all of the different systems that we use, because we like tried a forum, we've tried uh, a WordPress site, we've got all this <laughs> like we have like a google plus page it just goes on but. so the, the, there are a number of points through this 
I use GitHub. I think GitHub's very useful because it gives you some of the anonymity aspects that you're talking about, but basically it's a functional site associated with ongoing development of software. It has wiki and stuff if you want that kind of thing. But also it's very heavily involved associated with active contributions. So the people that do active contributions move up the hierarchy in a relatively interesting way. It, it breaks away from problems with sites like SourceForge, and it's actually about creating code. It's actually about functioning projects. A point that you've made progressively through this, which is something that I've really, through these recordings, tried to advocate against, is associated with reinventing the wheel. There's something very fun about doing something and appearing to do it for the first time and a lot of the excitement that goes into, you know, creating a new form of making landscapes, for example. But I think what interests me is actually that there is a lot of history and there are a lot of algorithms out there and there are a lot of projects that use existing algorithms that would easily be ported to Java or already exist in Java that have these kind of things. So, I mean, in Noble Lake, for example, and there is a fractal landscape algorithm that also has a weather algorithm and a biology algorithm thrown into that environment. It's relatively easy. I ported it to Java previously for people that have had Java projects that have wanted to use it. And, you know, all these things exist already. And the interesting thing about actually embracing the fact of the kind of history and the legacy of these kind of developments is that you get so much, you, your energy is then focused on what you want to work on. So rather than spending hours working out how to actually plug landscapes together, unless you want to, I mean, unless this is fundamentally part of what you want to do, you get an existing landscape algorithm that you can do your own development in and change accordingly. But it's it's far faster to some stated goal associated with exploring what you want to explore and far less associated with just working out how you actually glue all these parts together, which is basically a problem that has been solved kind of ad infinitum through the history of these kind of simulated environments. The other interesting thing associated with those kind of interactions is that, um, I mean, certainly I spent a good portion of my time with Noble 8 actually interacting with developers that want to do this. And what happens is that the code then hybridizes in some regard, and then it's the developer of Noble 8 may pick up some of these things or maintain certain components or these kind of things. And then what you end up with is a far more kind of, the probability of actually getting to the stated goal, the Manhattan Project for Artificial Life, as you've described, is a lot easier if you basically understand some aspect of the history, but also realise that the problem associated with creating a, a, rich tech, a rich textural landscape with a variety of you know biological components and weather and these kind of things is not a problem that you need to solve again. Because there is a history of, you know, 10, 15, 20 projects, and there are a number of active projects that have taken aspects of all of these and kind of hybridized it accordingly. I think the thing that interested me about my introduction to your Reddit community was the uh, paper by Nick Bostrom. And the paper by Bostrom has, uh, I was contacted by a, a philosopher friend of mine, Liz Swan, who has, I've recorded previously, about two years ago, saying there's this phenomenon associated with Boston paper online where people are actually referring to it in the exact opposite of what Boston says. <laughs> like, they haven't read Boston paper, or maybe they haven't got far enough into it to actually understand that he's advocating the opposite of what people think. But right. then this thing propagated, and you actually <laughs> showed the example of this. You actually were interpreting Boston for the exactly the opposite. So there is a difficulty because there's so much information that already exists out there, and a lot of it is um, hard to find. I mean, that's the beauty in some regard of links. 
but some of it also takes a degree of kind of investigation and learning and also some degree of experimentation and going out to, to prior simulations and really getting a sense of, in, in the code, I mean, this is where it actually gets interesting. And certainly I've been a strong advocate of all the kind of um, historical artificial life projects that have been of, of some great merit moving to open source. And I've been a strong advocate of moving a lot of where they, they previously like released the software, the the compiled <laughs> software, they just didn't release the source code, actually moving the source code open source as well. Because I think there's a lot of interesting things within that as well. To formalise this, you posted on Reddit that you were going to have a chat with me and you generated, or you, your community generated a series of, of questions. So why don't we move into the questions and then we'll have a kind of final discussion and, and work this thing into, into some kind of... Uh, holistic conclusion um but the questions that that were asked what do you want to start with some of them so uh, i guess tom skazinski's uh question was the first one have you ever thought of altering your simulation to become a playable game and what do you think the objective would be for your apes so in 1997 i got a grant from the australian film commission in order to make what was called an Nirvana simulation, they went on to become Noble Ape, into a playable game. And I worked on the project for about nine months to create a playable game called Escape from Nirvana, um, where the Noble Apes had to work together in order to find a way off the island. It was very much a kind of I don't know, early history, um, you know, finding trees, working out boat strategies, working out swimming strategies, trying to work a way off the island where the player um, was the hand of God who could both assist and, you know, meddle with the noble apes as they tried to find a way to escape off the island. I was also, at the time, very interested in the idea of the US military and the US military kind of using the Noble Ape simulation as um, like a futuristic environmental simulation tool. And I wrote a, an additional mod to Escape from Nirvana, which involved US Marines basically landing on the island uh, and the Noble Apes and the Marines. You know, it's, it's very Return of the Jedi-esque in terms of, uh, you know, indoor kind of style things where the Noble Apes had to work strategies against the Marines and the Marines who had their Marine training and all this kind of stuff. So yes, I have, I've, there's been a time where I've seriously considered and worked on turning aspects of Noble Ape into a playable game. Um, I also had a kind of first person perspective view of the Noble Ape environment that came through that development as well. And that was certainly instrumental through the Rushkov article into getting me at the, into the US and, you know, displaying that technology. So yes, there has been there has been an early emphasis on Noble Ape as a playable game, and it's certainly something that I mean I worked with some of the independent Second Life folk associated with creating a Second Life environment that was the Noble Ape environment, where players would go through the Second Life client into a Noble Ape simulation environment, and you wouldn't know who were the apes and who were the humans in the environment and all this kind of interesting stuff. But that, again, there were limitations with the open source Second Life server that was available at the time. And I did early porting, as I've described in Java, except they were using C Sharp. So I did early porting to get the landscape and the weather and these kind of things into the Second Life environment. But there were a number of obstacles through that that were never really cleaned up. I mean, my goal would be to either have a Java C, C++, 
Second Life server implementation, and then it would be very easy to to move Noble Ape into that. But yes, it's certainly something that I've considered. So you would actually port the behavior of the apes into a different uh, render environment, like you, into Second Life itself. Yeah, I mean, I think the there's enough there currently. I mean, what I'm adding currently is, uh, well, what Bob Muttram has added um, recently is kind of skeletal structures for the apes with internal organs and these kind of things. It's interesting they're really being rendered from the um, from the inside out, kind of antithesis of kind of traditional game creation. But yeah, I do have a view that all the stuff is there associated with incorporating movement and environment and um, all the kind of beautiful kind of genetic phenotype elements that you get through Noble 8 that you could have renderings through Second Life or any other kind of game environment. It just, it requires time. It requires time and the motivations of people uh, to do that. And potentially, I mean, I've thought about doing a Kickstarter project associated with getting funding um, and getting people at like UC Santa Cruz or one of the many, you know, folks that I know through academia get them some funding to get a group of students together to do that kind of work or potentially go to, I don't know, Industrial Light and Magic or one of the one of the companies that does movie 3D stuff because right. they all have proprietary agent models. And certainly Noble Ape has a, a number, if not all, the features of their proprietary agent models and is open source. So I would think that there is a strong claim there that they could also potentially pick up Noble Ape um, for their work and in the same time, also, because they have kind of rich visualization folk, um, they could also be kind of contributed back associated with, you know, the, the kind of 3D rendering and this kind of stuff that needs to uh, needs to move into a, a kind of Second Life client or any other kind of game client to give the kind of first eight perspective. So you mentioned UC Santa Cruz. Uh, are you talking about the, the like, I, I know they have a game type of game program there. Is, is that what you're referring to? They have a particular interface program that I think is ideally suited for this as well. It's a good combination of kind of artists and user interface people because irrespective of the way the apes are rendered, the interaction of the player through the simulation I think is a very important thing. And I think basically because all the kind of rendering smarts already exist in some form through the simulation, the ability to create an immersive user interface, I think, is the the interesting problem. And certainly, when I I mean I I know someone there, and when I've talked to the the person I know there, I've I've you know mentioned this, and they're very receptive to it. I mean, um, historically, you know, I've had some folks that have brought Noble Ape into universities for their particular programs, and these kind of visions of you know what what the simulation will do in these environments is very important. And certainly for this group, it was how do you actually create an intuitive user interface for a kind of first eight perspective game? Um, And that, that would be the, you know, the direction on that front. Have you ever considered peripherals like Oculus Rift or uh, maybe not the connect, but I forget the name of that. uh, So historically uh, when, when I, when I did the interview with Rushkov in 99, I was actually traveling um, North America and Europe um, working with VR labs, as they were called then. Um, so the Noble Ape has a strong, like early, well, actually later days of VR element to it. And certainly those environments, the reason I was talking to those people, you know, cave environments, these kind of things where you're in like immersive 3D interreactions, these kind of things, was very much that Noble 8 provided a rich environment that these 
devices, as you've described, would you know would be very useful in terms of kind of rendering and back rendering. Um, right. So yes, it's so it's interesting that kind of like the you mentioned kind of the a life uh, academic circles are much different than maybe the computer simulation and HCI uh, part of you know academia. It seems like there's a, if if they're in involved with creating new media like they almost don't care what like it's like wow that's awesome that's a really incredible like idea and technology that you're developing versus you know when it's when you're interfacing with someone whose profession is like creating uh or doing biology they probably have biases at that they they would rather break down into you know what those biases are versus. So there's an old phenomenon associated with artificial life, which is loosely referred to as science envy. Uh-huh. That basically you have a group of scientists that came to artificial life and wanted artificial life to comply with science, and I actually think it's really quite a curious phenomenon because it really perturbs. I my view is that artificial life falls into an interesting group, and this is now a, a defined group called simulation science. And what simulation science does is it doesn't go back to the biological sciences. It creates its own scientific method. It creates its own language. It creates its own mathematics that deal with vastly complex systems. And then it goes back to biology and says, you want to talk about termite mounds and bee swarms and these kind of things. Well, we have a mathematical language for that. And we have a history of simulation in this area. And this is the point of where we can have a conversation as opposed to we have a series of simulations with not enough detail, not enough meat, not enough complexity that we're looking to model these biological environments. So we really only in a kind of first principles means of getting to any kind of end data. And in the process of that, all this amazing stuff that is going on in industry, uh, all this kind of vast parallel computing, cloud computing, all this different kinds of mathematics and processor optimization, none of that narrative affects these um, primarily biologists, a small number of physicists as well, that are doing this work, which ultimately, for me, coming to uh, the Artificial Life Conference and having a historical legacy understanding the history of these artificial life conferences, I thought I was coming to like the second or the third artificial life conference and I was coming to, you know, 10 plus down the line, what the 13th conference. So, Mm -hmm. you know, over 26 years, the field as it is represented academically is still trying to solve the same movement and basic biological problems that certainly a noble api solved 10 15 years ago to a certain extent and have continued on very much in terms of industry and commerce and and the hobbyist community and these academics are still worrying about the same set of problems the curious thing i found because i spent a week at um michigan state university following in their um uh, complexity and um complexity lab was talking to real biologists not artificial life biologists but actual real biologists and describing what I had done with Noble Ape in that setting, and it's recorded audio that, you know, anyone can, can access. And then you see some of the wonder. And this is the thing that I've always found with Noble Ape is, historically, when I've met with scientists, I've been able to show them, and they've been amazed at the ability to add complexity and these kind of things and, and solve a series of problems that they never firstly get funding for, move in the right direction. I mean, basically, they're dealing with a kind of naval-chasing element, 
And Noble 8, because it, it's based on my interests and the interests of folks that have contacted me and worked with me, has gone in a variety of different directions, but actually moved past a lot of the basic problems that they're still looking to, you know, get data on and this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's, it's the, the difference between parts of academia that are driven by industry and parts of academia that have this, like, hard science envy is right. really quite extreme. Uh, but it's something that I would have hoped historically artificial life would have been like a bright shining light on but unfortunately i think in some in some circles i know there are you know there's gecko and there's ieee artificial life there are other circles that seem to be doing something slightly better um but it's it is very curious to me and it's something that really affected me quite strongly emotionally because i thought i was coming to the promised land and meeting my people and instead, I came to an environment where I was very much alien once again. And these people were not even really interested or connected with the kinds of problems that I was looking to solve. And it was very curious to me because I started to wonder, where are my people? You know, I've spent 17 years doing this stuff. I come to a conference which is nominally connected with the work that I've been doing over this period of time. And I've interviewed a number of the people who attended. But at the same point, we are just speaking fundamentally a different language. It was a very curious thing. What, what was the next question, Tom? Oh, I was going <laughs> to... Oh, if you had a follow-up, please don't. <laughs> I was going to ask if you heard of uh, JAS, the Journal of Artificial Societies and Social Simulation. So, I think they're European. Yeah, I've, I've had some <laughs> connection with that through a fellow who was part of the early Noble Ape development. And I think the thing that interests me through that is there's a kind of academic... There's a, there's, a, there's a parallel within academic studies of electronic societies. There's like a formalism which is currently going through that element as well. And I still, although, well, I can't be too candid about this, but I think there's, there's an interesting overlap. And whenever you try to formalise something with only a partial understanding of the problems or the, the, you know, the representations, you will end up with something that's slightly stifled. And the stuff that I've read, which, albeit was a couple of years ago, indicated to me that they weren't really following some of the like truly emergent wonder that you get in these um, electronic societies. Um, but that's an aside. It seemed like there was some interesting stuff that came out of there, like uh, the si simulpast, which I think is mostly Spanish. And they had some sort of like um, mesolithic simulation, which I, I had on my blog. Um, but it just seemed to... Kind of related in that it was kind of pre prehistoric, uh, kind of agent-based modeling, but I, they don't really. I, I wish there's more detail on that. I guess. So the Spanish artificial life community, or should I say, the Spanish-speaking artificial life community, is a community that I've tried to get some inroads into, and I've tried to talk to some people, and I've had like one interview. There's a an artificial life art prize called uh, Vida, which is basically most well it's 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 sponsored by the spanish telecommunication firm telefonica but there is there are inroads into the kind of spanish language artificial life community which is distinctly different to the english language artificial life community and it's a community that's always interested me i've just never gotten sufficient inroads into it in order to kind of discuss the the stuff that you're referring to and I, it seems from what you say that you've had similar similar language issues basically Right. Kind of as an aside, I, I was going to just bring up that uh, coming from astronomy, uh, uh, there was a lot of, like, 
what how I regard simulation and, and I, I've always been less familiar with, you know, a life and I've, I kind of, a lot of my friends worked on, uh, end body simulations and, uh, for doing like galaxy mergers or, or that sort of stuff. I, I think maybe it would be, I, I think there's less stigma. I, it's like hobbyists can't really create th- these types of simulations because they require, you know, a HPC, you know, high, high performance computing to, to actually churn those out. Like you have to, well, you, think, you would think that was the case. I mean, my view is actually that HPC problems are downscalable as well as upscalable. And right. I think a lot of these, I mean, Noble Ape has been used as an HPC application from time to time, and it was originally written on an XT and uh, 68,000 Mac. I mean, my view is that actually what you want in these simulations is to create a degree of scalability, which move it to HPC and move it back to, you know, iPhone and everything in between. So, I mean, my view is that um, there are certainly plenty of scalable, um, you know, embodied simulation uh, environments out there. But anyway, continue. It's just interesting. I mean, having it scale down, like there are games that sort of simulate that to some extent. But the, the majority of terrain and planets that are, occur in, in, like, Space Engine or in, in, in uh, just M- Miguel Cicero's Proc World, like, they're, it's, they're, they're generated, but they're not simulated. So that's, that's kind of one of the distinctions that I've noticed is, like, for terrain versus, um, like, you could have it hurling noise and you could generate it really easily. Or you could actually run hydrodynamic simulations and, uh, you know, get model kind of like, uh, erosion and, and such. And I feel like it's pro- maybe it might be easier. There, there might be less stigma, you know, in the physical earth and space sciences than maybe there are in the, bi- the biology. In, 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 in it's, it's the- interesting because, I mean, the, there are a number of physicists that are in the artificial life community. I just want to make one point. The two methods of landscape generation that you mentioned aren't mutually exclusive, and right. you can actually use both of them to generate realistic-looking landscapes. You can have water erosion methods as well as um, you know noise and fractal maps that actually work together. Um, but moving aside from that, I think I think it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated problem that you're describing associated with the the various you know academic areas and the various methods that they use and again it's not as we're simplifying some aspects of this i mean if i were to give a critique associated with my experience of the artificial life conference it would be associated with individuals rather than their particular fields and i right. think the, there are a number of people um certainly you know people that stopped me at the a life conference that were familiar with my work and familiar with biota and these kind of things um, and I got a sense that obviously there were people there, but they just hadn't reached the kind of, you know, majority or at least the, the points of control and dominance that other parties had that had implemented and influenced this field in a very strange direction from my perspective. So, yes, I mean, I think the role of individuals and the role of disciplines, academic disciplines, are two separate conversations, but this is something that we could talk about for, for many hours, and I think sure. let's return to some of the questions. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry to take it off on a tangent. I, yeah. Probably too much on that. It's just interesting that, you know, all of science is kind of... It's making a model and, and uh, 
it's, it's cool to see how... Well, some, I mean, some, some scientists believe that, but the majority don't. I mean, the majority have their own intellectual pursuits, which are oftentimes highly idealistic and highly uh, right. focused, associated with their own perspectives of reality. And I'm, I think that is what is really curious, that actually through that, you would think that they were just creating models, but actually there's something more important in the minds of the individuals that is going on, and that's what actually creates the strange perturbation. And I'm sure, you know, socio, you know sociologists have their own... <laughs> I, I don't really know that branch too well, but that, there, there are some soft sciences which probably... I've talked to people and talked about kind of like the idea of a life and simulating stuff. And it's just, it's like, you can never do that. You can't simulate a person. There's an interesting, that's not completely correct. Um, (laughs) The political, there's a, there's a political science community that use swarm models uh, quite successfully. And I think you, again, you know, there's, there's enough information for these communities out there that you can start investigating, particularly if you look at swarm.org, a good group of the folk that are using, you know, long-term open source swarm technologies are actually in the field of political science. I'm not sure if they're sociologists. They prefer to use the term social science. Social <coughs> science is probably not the term one should use with regards to these disciplines. That aside, yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a complicated area. Um, uh, I actually have uh, some questions. If, uh, certainly, go for it. Okay. So, uh, have you ever, so I've, I've actually haven't had a chance to play the Noble Ape, um, but it, was there anything in it that surprised you, like some sort of emergent behavior or something that you, you thought was going to happen one way, but happened a different way in a way? So the kind of elixir of artificial life developers is emergent behavior. And one of the things that continues to interest me through Noble Ape is emergent behavior. What started as a relatively simple simulation in Noble Ape with a relatively simple set of guiding principles has certainly become considerably more complex over the past 17 years. Throughout the development, I've found points of emergence that have been really very interesting to me. And what you find, particularly when you create these kind of simulations, is that you always have this kind of hand of God you know, there's always a group of people who say, well, that was just explicitly programmed. How could you have had that experience because it was just explicitly programmed by you? And I think the thing of beauty with, with creating simulations like Noble Ape is that you program so little and yet you see so much. I mean, you really, in terms of the benefits of the environment and the interactions, one of the examples that I've used pretty ad nauseum is associated with the phenomena of... Um, false parents. But it is still something that fascinates me, and it's still something that I can't really understand. It's the idea that basically the noble apes through experience have these kind of slots, for want of a better term, that they populate with a kind of family structure, which is completely independent of genetics, in ideally. And there is a, um, because there's also a strong kind of narrative component, there's the potential through just conversation that the noble apes conversations will mutate and they will add, you know, random mutations in the conversation, a kind of whispers problem um, where um, new parents or different parents are inserted in the conversation. 
So you have this rumour that so-and-so thinks that so-and-so is their father, but in fact so-and-so is really their father, or because of the way the noble oak communities evolve, the potential of having different mothers as well, although fathers tend to be the ones that, for whatever reason, uh, propagate through. So you have many levels of simulation. You have a raw biological simulation. Then you have the kind of perceptive simulation associated with who are the, who are the parents. And then you have this communication <coughs> simulation that actually conveys that information across. But... So you then have this circumstance where when people are, have identified new parents or parents that weren't previously acknowledged, this rumour spreads very quickly through the community. In fact, irrespective of the way in which we've coded um, for this kind of communication, we here being Bob Bottrum and myself, this has always propagated up the discussion point. Um, so you can get this idea of the epic conversation, which is the eight that is being talked about the most. And you can see these false parents being inserted because immediately this becomes like the hot topic of conversation amongst the noble apes. This is a completely emergent property. It's not been explicitly programmed for in any way. It was just discovered before I went to the uh, A-Life conference and there's been some correspondence associated with it. But you get these kind of phenomena um, which are in no way programmed for but just occur. And I think what's interesting also is now um, there's a kind of rich underlying bi biological simulation associated with organs, associated with uh, concepts like heart disease and these kind of things. So you're starting to see emergent properties through uh, physiology that never have been explicitly programmed in Nobelite previously. And now you get kind of skeletal structures and organs. Um, one of the longest like users of the simulation um, was actually a, a he communicates with me periodically but he's like a surgeon he's a, he's a medical doctor who does he spends a lot of time in Africa and he periodically would contact me and talk about the biological simulation methodology in Noble Ape and I think that's been like an ongoing theme that you have these professionals who occasionally kind of check in with whatever's going on <laughs> with Noble Ape and, and provide you see I get my own sense of emergence we all have our own perspectives on emergence but this medical professional has his own perspective on emergence and he sees different emergent properties in the simulation which is one of these things which is you can not only generate wonder in yourself at this emergence, but you can also generate the wonder in others with emergence as well. That's uh, very interesting. <laughs> I like the way you said the emergent behavior is the elixir. <laughs> it's a good way to put putting it. How, how do the uh, agents like? Could you go into like the neural, like the neural network aspect of of the apes, and how do they uh, develop like language and uh, communicate with each other? So. I've recently kind of publicly published a chapter that I wrote a year or two ago associated with uh, the Noble Ape simulation, um, kind of from top down, which talks in particular um, emphasis on the kind of mind of the Noble Ape. There are three components currently, although these components are currently jostling for priority, and there may be a fourth component that comes through this, but the first is the underlying cognitive simulation. The cognitive simulation was actually based on um, information transfer in agar. So if you're familiar with kind of petri dish bacterial growth, the way bacteria grows and the way it consumes the nutrients in the agar and the way it kind of transmits and moves through the agar is a very interesting model of information transfer. So I took that relatively abstract model of information transfer and created what I call the cognitive simulation. It is not a neural network. It has some properties which are a little bit like a neural network, but basically it's more about the the retardation and propagation of information through a three-dimensional wraparound structure. Mm. And with that, you have sensors and actuators that are injected in that environment, 
and the communication, the perturbation, and the interference between these sensors and actuators create meta-properties of the cognitive simulation. This was the way the simulation was up until about maybe four years ago, uh, maybe three, four years ago, when a developer, a roboticist in the UK called Bob Mottram, uh, got involved with the simulation. His background is social robotics. So the stuff that he added was a social simulation, a relatively social simulation based on Cynthia Brazil's work at MIT Robotics. And also um, the narrative engine, which is basically like a language simulation, enables you know the stuff that I've described associated with gossiping and communication. And the narrative is both an internal narrative that the ape creates with regards to itself and other entities that it simulates internally. It's a bit like imagining having a conversation before having a conversation with a person. Or you have existing within you entities that you can have conversations with to kind of reinforce your view of you know the outside world which can be reinforced by actually meeting these individuals and having conversations in the outside world but also enables the notion of kind of deities or um you know like abraham lincoln you know like there's an abraham lincoln in the noble ape simulation that none of the living noble apes have met but some noble apes you know four score and ten years ago were able to have a conversation with one time and that noble ape has kind of propagated through the consciousness of the other noble apes through conversation that you know abraham lincoln noble ape was referred to and has been progressively referred to as um you know the noble ape that freed another group of noble apes i mean i'm using a rough example here but this is the idea that within the internal narrative there exist entities that are both entities that the apes interact with um, in in real time, in, in actual interaction, and also potentially historical noble apes. Or what's even more interesting, you can have like the Osama bin Laden noble ape that none of the other noble apes have ever seen. There's no, been no prior interaction. This noble ape internally is represented by a series of kind of strange mutations. So you get this kind of strange deity relationship between kind of angelic historical noble apes and kind of demonic historical noble apes and all this kind of beautiful stuff. But they're the three simulations that exist currently. And what's interesting is with the addition of certain additional biological components, the social simulation part, the part that Brazil developed very much for these simple robotic robots interacting is becoming less and less important and what's interesting through this is that the language simulation can can simulate a wide variety of the important stuff associated with sexuality um and um social elements obviously and then for um like the the kind of underlying hunger and fatigue elements these are more primary so basically the social simulation potentially in the in the near future could be removed from that kind of three-tier cognitive or um, mind simulation and just have on one end a really kind of crazy language and on the other end basic biological reactivity but yeah that's that's the way the the mind of the noble ape works currently interesting and so just to be clear those those languages are all abstracted they're not linguistically generated i mean they, they evolve but the, it, it, you would, would you see like whole sentences or, or i mean do they conjugate like a, a like a, a, a language in the real world might or so this is an interesting i mean historically computational linguists have been interested in noble ape and i've always felt as i've developed it that i've wanted to do something along the lines of what you're describing mm-hmm. it's starting with place names and time What's happened, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the origins of English, as in a formal language, but what happened was that there were all these tribes in the, primarily England, um, but really up into parts of Scotland, 
mm-hmm. and they all had different languages. They were all all over the place, and then progressively they decided to unify the language and, and come to some kind of collective agreement. Although, as you travel around the UK, there are still dialects which are completely and utterly un- unintelligible. I mean, it's really very fascinating that in such a small, or relatively small country, um, and you see the same in the US, um, in particular parts of the South and, you know, particular parts of the Midwest and what have you. But the notion of uh, place names and times as being shared points. So if a group of noble apes go across the same island peninsula, they will start implicitly creating naming conventions associated with this space that may describe the physicalities of the space as well. That's optional. But what you'll tend to find is over a period of time, the physicalities of the space will become part of the shared language of these apes. You then take another group of apes that have been developed in maybe a particularly different simulation environment, and then you put them in that environment as well. They have an existing language, an existing communication that has been, you know, evolutionarily optimised over, you know, many generations of intercommunication, having to create common terms like stick and rock and fish and this kind of stuff. And they too need to create shared naming conventions associated with these points of geography. Time is interesting as well. Similarly, the apes will have a, a, a time tapestry associated with the time of day, potentially the seasons, but also the granularity of time is interesting. So, because the apes sleep during the evenings, night, what have you, aside if they rained on or a wave breaks over them, all this kind of stuff, or they're woken up by another noble ape, but the, the notion of naming conventions with time also create some kind of abstract need for similarity. And this is the kind of starting point. So I'm starting, I could start with twigs and rocks and fish and these kind of things as well, and that's certainly something I'm very mindful of. But the geographical naming conventions and the time naming conventions I think are very interesting. What I want to test through this, and I've already started to to do this kind of abstract implementation both with territories and with time, is to see if there can be kind of shared language, so two groups of apes that have kind of agreed upon languages come together, and can they actually hybridise associated with what are fundamentally nouns of some description? Other aspect things like verbs and conjugation, all this kind of stuff, I think that's relatively secondary. But in parallel to this, I've also written a um, an audio simulation of spoken language. Part of the thing that interests me is not just to have a rich, immersive environment that is absolutely without sound, but actually starting to be receptive to the kind of genetic manipulation and, well, sorry, the epigenetic manipulation of language, but also the genetic manipulation of language associated with throats and tongues and body size and, you know, lung capacity and all this kind of stuff. So that when a noble ape emits a sound, it's based on not just its cognitive you know, view of language, but also based on the, the physics of the body. Right. So this has kind of gone on in parallel, and my view is that the, this will kind of hybridise together ideally in the next couple of years in something that ticks a lot more of the boxes with regards to computational linguistics and also enables folks to start thinking about, start running, like, evolutionary language simulations, basically, through Noble Ape. In parallel to this, for about the past three years, although this isn't really his specialty, I've been um, having a weekly conversation with a futurist linguist called Heron Stone. And through doing that, um, although he's not, um, he's not a traditional academic linguist by any stretch of the imagination, I've been able to kind of realign 
some of the elements of noble Ape, and this is ultimately the narrative engine as well, with the concerns of a linguist on the streets, so to speak. So I think um, I'm certainly very mindful of these things, and it is it is like a long-term project that I'm working towards. But in short answer, not currently for all of what you're describing, but in the long term, hopefully, yes. Awesome. Um, I have a question. If, uh, certainly. So uh, do, do the noble apes, do they... Um like, do they start a life and then end? Is it multi-generational? Yes. Or... Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it's interesting both within generations and multi-generational. And there are a number of different ways to run the Noble Ape simulation. But one of the ways that I've been a strong proponent of uh, recently is just a command line version where the file formats and everything are the same as the graphical version. But you can, you can you know, if you've got the, the time and the processing run for you know, a hundred, five hundred, a thousand years. And it's actually interesting. There's a fellow in Germany who runs the simulation for, um, you know, thousands of years, um, thousands of simulated years. And he actually reports some really interesting bugs. I mean, thankfully, a majority of the bugs that he's, he's submitted we've been able to correct. But it is very interesting, actually, to have both a kind of day-to-day simulation interaction and also, uh, you know, what happens in, you know, 4,000 years of the simulation being run in simulation time. Um, and I think that's really been a critical part of the longevity of Noble Ape is that I've maintained or worked to maintain the stability of the simulation. Uh, stability here means doesn't crash <laughs> um, for, for, you know, day-to-day interactions, but also millennia-to-millennia interactions. Yeah, one thing uh, that I want to bring up is I'm working on a, a hunter-gatherer simulation and there's this evolutionary aspect to it where the player is almost like a matchmaker of this village. And what I found, what happens at the beginning, I, I generally I uh, generate a random kind of DNA for all these little uh, creatures. And over time, they sort of, you know, as generations go by, they all sort of become the same. Like the genes kind of saturate within the whole the whole village. I don't know if you found that happening in your noble apes is the, the, the genetic diversity kind of goes away and it becomes a melting pot <laughs> in a way. So, so the benefit of landscape is that um, the energy cost associated with creating a clan, which is what you're describing, mm, right. it's very difficult to become like a conqueror of nations. The actual energy that needs to be required just maintaining a clan is a limiting factor. And what, what would be interesting in your simulation is actually to create a much larger landscape and right. m- many small villages. Yeah, yeah. And then actually look at the evolution of, of the clan through that. Because what you, what you find is you'll see genetic dominance early on. You'll see circumstances where um, you will end up with, with clans but within those clans, you start to have ejected radicals. I mean, this is really associated with the diversity of assimilation. You need to have environments where you'll see ejected radicals that will create their own kind of sub-clans. You'll need to see things associated with warfare and negotiation. Uh, you'll need to see... I mean, what, what the... Um, you know, as, as is uh, now 
you know, part of the popular vernacular with games of Game of Thrones, but it's always existed in um, <laughs> in kind of feudal Europe. Um, the ability to marry and intermarry and these kind of things, and the importance of doing that over long periods of time. I mean, you start to see these these are emergent properties that you should look to create in your simulations. Um, and, and let me not say create, let me say um, uh, enable to facilitate that basically if you're seeing things that are just creating vast structural dominance, it's probably more that you are not, that you're, either your simulation is too fixed in some regard or that your simulation needs to add an additional component that you haven't yet considered that will enable to kind of resolve these kind of problems. And although it's premature to make any kind of claims associated with, you know, simulating humanity and these kind of things. I think what interests me through these kind of simulations is that the player, I mean, if you're creating a game, if your simulation ultimately results every time in a super clan developing, then it's not going to be particularly fun for the player as well. (laughs) So you need to start considering elements where things where you've previously hard-coded maybe decouple slightly or potentially Mm -hmm. the addition of new new interesting um, metrics. You find this when you um, create large predator-prey environments. If you create a Mm -hmm. predator-prey environment where you want some degree of kind of oscillating stability, you really want to maximize the number of kind of productive species in this environment. It's very difficult to create a stable predator-prey system with three species with interactive predator-prey relationships between them. Mm -hmm. But when you have 20 species you will find conditions of stability which ultimately you are also interested in, in gameplay because you will mm. not have any dominant structure um, you know based just on this kind of it's it's almost counterintuitive until you've seen it enough times that actually what you want is a degree of complexity in order to create interesting kind of stability problems rather mm. than you know a small number of things that will just dominate and become very boring very quickly hmm. interesting yeah uh, I kind of had like a cons- a conceptual say uh, premise a-, a couple months back, which was that m- how would it be possible to simulate kind of the behavior of clans or, or groups as kind of like proceduralistically, like like if you wanted to render every single person on the world, like like maybe around you know go back two or three thousand years, it like. You don't, if you wanted to conserve computational resource, could you, in some sense, have like a neural net that simulates an entire clan or like even an entire village as opposed to having each agent rendered explicitly as like a brain state? Could you kind of have like a meta mind? So, what, what's interesting through Brazil's work, which is also, I can describe it in two ways. But you don't actually need very much uh, social intelligence in order to render a perfectly plausible society. There's another interesting component from that, and this is the notion of roles in society. You can look at it in a variety of kind of sociological perspectives, but the one that I enjoy is also the is is the notion of radicals in a society that you have. You have normatives and you have radicals, and the normatives basically will typically behave in a kind of hierarchical fashion where they all exhibit roughly the same kinds of behaviours, which you see through, like, 
you know, the kind of Age of Empires kind of games where you had, you know, peons that would go out and collect wood and bring it back and collect wood and bring it back and collect wood and bring it back and, you know, and these kind of things. You have these, you have these, I mean, this is the way that the society could be perceived to be organised even to the present day. That, you know, you have people that have primary functions, um, repair roads, um, you know, tend to broken limbs, these kind of things, that they've gathered through a variety of perspectives in their life. And you can, you can create relatively straightforward social simulations by creating these kind of hierarchical structure points and just saying, um, you know, for whatever reason, through the evolution of this person, um, uh, whatever experiences they have, they will fulfill one of these predefined roles, which they will then map to. What's more interesting particularly in emergent societies, is the idea of the radical. So you have a group of these normative folk that are just doing their tasks, and then you have the radical who comes up with um, some different kind of mapping of, um, you know, social structure, maybe organised labour, um, you know, maybe radical capitalism. I mean, all these things can kind of be codified and new ones can be created within that as well. And they exist in order to kind of perturb the normatives to changing fundamentally. Now, in a kind of tribalist society, what used to happen is, um, you see this with an animal, um, social animal groups as well, is that there'll typically be a time that there is some emergent kind of um, male that wants to make the alpha play. Um, they're kind of knocked to the side by a dominant male and they go off and form their own tribe. And this is basically what happens through um, through this kind of radical societal simulation as well. Um, early on through Noble Ape, I had a discussion with a fellow called Bo Daly, who um, actually is the fellow I've referenced with regards to um, electronic communities as well. And he was very interested in this idea of the average ape, you know, what the average Noble Ape did in the Noble Ape simulation and whether you track the average ape in, in clans, whether you, you know, how many average apes would you need in order to accurately describe the entire society, which is basically what you're talking about, but actually creating a kind of optimising mathematical algorithm to find the averages from an existing society. So, I mean, I think there are a number of really quite interesting simulation perspectives in order to get to what you're describing. What's quite interesting is to do the organic method where you just have these, you know, entities going out doing what they do and then applying, as, as you know, Bo Daly um, postulated early on in the late development, that you run this kind of average algorithm workout how many independent agents of this kind of normative ape form would you need in order to simulate any particular society? Right. I, I, I always thought of it kind of like, yeah, like you could have the probability of a radical. And, and then kind of when I, I had this idea of, you know, like, you know, quantum mechanics tells you that something doesn't exist until you measure it sort of like you would have like a large scale model that simulates everyone else on a different continent than you. But when you travel to that continent, um, suddenly the granularity shifts down. And as that, and this, this would work for like a, a player immersed or like an observer. And, and as you kind of interact, like at a smaller scale, you go into a, a country, you go into a village and you walk up to someone on the street you kind of take, you would take kind of the metamind concept and like probabilistically render the agent state and how, and flesh out a full person to have a conversation with. And then when you're done, there's some sort of half-life or decay. And over time, you know, like the, the, the chance of you 
talking to that person again will diminish and they get rendered again as uh as a meta mind and and i'll look i'll look into both do you have any good uh like re- references from uh bo daly and kind of like the well it's in the original manuals of not belief i mean that's where he talked about it um in terms of its actual implementation i mean there is um there is a slightly more advanced social simulation in Nibelape associated with tracking uh, social groups and in particular the ejection of radicals, which creates like this two-dimensional map that shows societal groups. And then you can actually see, irrespective of the physical ejection, kind of in on a variety of different factors, how socially uh, a particular individual or a group of individuals can be ejected from the society. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the underlying mathematics and ideas exist within Noble Ape to do this. Um, it's something that I return to periodically um, because I think it is a, it is an interesting meta-simulation aside from, you know, Noble Ape as it is normally. There's a really cool uh, animation thing where they use it for open source. Like, you can watch your version, the versioning, and you can watch the, like, different modules of your code. Certainly. And uh, it, it seemed like it would be a good obs- op- way to, like, observe that kind of, like, ejection of agents and stuff. I'll, I'll see if I can't find that and send that to you later. I'm, I'm, I've seen it historically, and I'm familiar with it. I mean, basically, that's a ball line graph. The Noble 8 version is just a point graph, but basically it forms, the society forms the balls, so basically you have point user agents which create balls because they can't all exist at the specific point. They actually have like a physicality associated with them in the social environment. So you get a similar but slightly more um, kind of returning to quantum mechanics, kind of quantum mechanics fuzzy view of these uh, social groups, which is why I've continued to maintain that versus go to a kind of collective ball stick uh, graph model. But, but I am familiar with what you're talking about. Yeah. It'd be interesting to have, you know, like dashboard, you have the, like just two monitors, one that shows you like the metrics and stuff coming out from the simulation. And the other one, like you could have, uh, you know, the actual interface and like what you have with weather and, and the agents roving so around. So there's a very real problem associated with the volume of information that these kind of simulations produce. And what I've done Recently with Noble Ape is just enable a combination command line graphical environment to try and tackle some of that. But it's almost impossible. In fact, I think it is impossible. I think it, I'm throwing down the gauntlet here to anyone who wants to create a sufficiently, and maybe with like 50 monitors all tracking different <laughs> things, but it's not humanly intelligible. I mean, I think basically the simulations have developed a level of complexity where you can't you can't actually fathom every aspect of it as it goes on. I mean, it's very similar to, um, you know, problems that exist in the real world associated with tracking this kind of information. So it is interesting. I mean, all you really need to do is provide a different cut, a different view into these things, but you'll still probably, unless you program for it specifically in terms of, um, you know, unit tests, what have you, actually miss some of these subtleties. But yeah, I, I, I am very receptive to what you're saying. Right. I mean, you have to figure out what you want to show. I mean, exactly. Well, you can you can show a lot of stuff. It's just showing the stuff altogether becomes kind of overwhelming, and you also end up with redundant information, which is what's really interesting with um, particularly the command line. Is that really? I think probably what will end up with is a kind of mod- which is very strange for 
talking about command lines, but a kind of modular command line um, method that enables you to actually stack information in what you see in kind of text form, plus just a variety of different graphs that you can see in real time as well. But yeah, it is a very different, it's a very different kind of problem, which is ultimately why I wanted to engage with these UI people, because I think you can't be, you can be a polymath to a certain extent with regards to these kind of simulations. You can't really glean everything that has been, everything of importance has occurred in every possible field. You need to have some degree of outreach to, to artists, to UI people, uh, to graphics people, uh, to people that have spe- specific knowledge and interest in, as you say, sociology and these kind of areas. Because you can read, you can spend all your time reading and none of your time simulating. You spend all your time simulating, none of your time reading. But, you know, you need to be able to actually engage with other folk that have bodies of knowledge in other areas that can assist in these circumstances too. Definitely. I guess I think that covers a lot of our questions. I was kind of curious about your, uh, you've had some relation with Douglas uh, Rushkoff in the, is yeah. that, I don't yeah. know how to pronounce the last name. Rushkoff. Rushkoff. Yeah, it, it means actually in Yiddish, it means monkey head. Um, which is which is quite funny in and of itself but yeah it's funny actually because i was very close with doug from the period of time when he wrote the article for about two years and i spent a lot of time with him and his friends in new york and i worked with a, a startup that he was affiliated with over that period of time and i gave a couple of or maybe one guest lecture at nyu and then i did kind of a drop in just chat at nyu as well and it's interesting, actually, because, I mean, a lot of the stuff that um, Douglas publishes and has kind of continued to publish, I've actually been, I mean, really, from his first book to his current book, I've been very critical of almost everything Douglas has done. And it's funny as he exists in a kind of personal, as he exists in, sorry, a, um, a promotional form, a commercial entity, um, you know, on the Colbert Report et al., versus as he exists as a person. But yeah, I don't know. What what kind of questions do you want to ask about Doug? <laughs> oh, I mean, I just thought it was interesting, like the that you brought up the anonymity thing because I think I remember reading one of his. I, I can't remember what it was, but he he discussed that um, explicitly. I think it's fair to assume on most things Doug and I disagree, and um, it's actually interesting because we, through our friendship, one of the things that I said to him initially. I mean, the reason that I started communicating with him was that I read his Siberia book. And I just thought it was just really horrible. I mean, it's a really scarily bad book in terms of the fact that it didn't capture any of the texture associated with the kind of emerging alternative digital culture. And it was all very focused in the San Francisco Bay Area. Anyway, so from that initial email, we struck up a friendship. Uh, (laughs) And it is, yeah, it is a very interesting thing. But I think a lot of what Doug has said, particularly recently, the stuff on currency, the stuff on open source, the stuff on, um, you know, always on, uh, to screw with him really fundamentally on a number of those things. And it's quite curious because when I have interacted with Doug, we are, we interact as friends as opposed to like intellectual discussion. And in one-on-one conversations, Doug talks about this is what he does professionally. Like this is his shtick. And obviously there are n number of degrees of different um, critiques of what he does, but it's what he does. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's that's a that's pretty neat. I had a question that just slipped my. There mind. were a series of formal questions that covered a variety of different things, and I think we've kind of fallen into some relatively deep rat holes through this. <laughs> in terms of the formal questions, I mean, I think there were some areas that we missed in terms of our general discussion. Yeah, um, 
I think we covered names. We covered, uh, I guess, the narrative engine. There's one from, uh, okay, so there's one, there's one from Spencer. He's a political economy student at Harvard. Very good. And he says that, he's, he's asking, in your Origin of Mind paper, you mentioned that the apes' limited memory and imperfections of their interactions have led to small social groups, as small groups seem to be the most secure in terms of uh, reliable and beneficial social interactions. Do you think that we would see larger social groups if memory was expanded and if imperfections were reduced? Yes. And and I, in, fa- in fact, it goes two ways. And this is a very interesting point because it relates very directly to what I'm trying to do in terms of turning Noble Ape into a, a cloud computing simulation, or at least aspects of it into a cloud computing simulation. Uh, so the problem with the small memory is twofold. It creates artificial barriers. Um, it creates just artificial social groups. And the other thing that it doesn't have currently, which I think is critical and, and something that I'm going to work on, or, or Bob Bottrom will, is um, this idea of um, kind of archetypes, stereotypes, and compression. And the notion that you have, you have your individual parents, you have your individual family, and then you have this abstract idea of your parents and your family. And eventually, these abstract ideas, which are basically kind of normative and descriptive forces, take over and become, you know, this is what uh, someone in society is like. This is what a Republican is like. This is what a Democrat is like. This is what, you know, someone from New York City is like. The Nobelites need to have this ability to have kind of compressive, discussive characteristics as well. It's not just about the size of memory that they have associated with simulating these individuals. They also need to have the ability to simulate abstract individuals that exist as um, kind of compressed stereotypes. And the cognitive simulation, the, sorry, the... Um, the language simulation, the social simulation around this, the social event simulation and the social links, lends itself towards that in a couple of ways, but it's still relatively tightly coupled. What I'd right. like to do is, there will be some scaling of this, is that um, apes in a particular period of their life will have a growing number of these. So as they have you know, early childhood, early ape childhood experiences, they will have a small number of these, and then it will reach a kind of critical mass, and then it will reduce... And when it reduces, you get this kind of beautiful, you know, old crotchety noble ape in the rocking chair telling those damn kids to stay off his lawn because basically they've gotten to a point where they've, they're in the process now where they're actually refining the experiences that they have had with the individuals that they've had. And they are now creating kind of hybrid stereotypes that are, they are actually propagating in their kind of interactive discourse. So yes, the social mind component, the social memory and the way in which societies are perceived by individuals is something that I think is rich for... And it's a relatively small number of code changes in order to do this, but I think it would create a considerably more interesting and substantially more scalable situation. The, the problem currently is that the limit is around six external individuals uh, modelled internally, and it's with regards to unique individuals. So if that could move to maybe 10 or um, in the kind of most extreme cases upwards of 20 and then reducing, 
you would get more, vastly more interesting kind of social interactions and probably it would improve a variety of different things in the simulation. I mean, to give some background history, the simulation was started 17 years ago on, um, like, early personal computing hardware, like XT PCs and 68,000 Macs. Mm Mm-hmm. And the memory and mathematical constraints that existed on these computers haunted probably at least the first six years of the simulation. And then still through the interaction with Apple, there were various constraints associated with the memory and what have you. Increasingly, I am moving to, I mean, within, you you don't want super sentient no blames. You want some (laughs) degree of sentient like parameters in there. But increasingly, I'm looking actually to vastly expand um, the way memory is used and use it more intelligently to actually create something which is considerably more interesting and, dare I say it, realistic um, in terms of these kind of things. And yes, um, what, uh, what your friend at Harvard has, has touched on is part of that. Sweet. Uh, so have you, in, t- in talking about like expanded uh, cognitive tools... Uh, have you followed or have you ever um like th- there's open cog and uh by uh what's his name the Gerthel mm-hmm. Ben and then there's uh you know N- the ncog framework and uh there's a lot of cognitive software out there and it'd be really cool at some point to just figure out how to incorporate an instance of that for like maybe like you mentioned like having a number like six to ten people that are in close connection. If if we were to make like a game experience, like maybe have those six people that are closest have access to like more cognitive resources, and then treat you know people external to that that you interact with less with as as you know the, the limited capacity agent until you interact. But I, I just wondered uh, like. Have you ever used uh, OpenCog, or, or have you ever... Um... So, the, the two packages I'm familiar with, in large part through uh, Ken Stanley's interaction with me and the interaction of his... I had a fellow who worked on Noble Ape for three years that then went on to do his Masters with, with Ken Stanley. And I met Ken Stanley at the ALIFE conference as well. Um, is is more in the kind of hyper-neat vein, uh, which is a very... it's. It's slightly more biologically inspired and slightly more of the kind of historical A-life fraternity than OpenCog, but I think it basically solves the same problems. It just has some beautiful stuff associated with symmetry and scalability and these kind of things. So um, my preference would probably, if I was to open this aspect or connect this aspect with an existing simulation, the... It's been maybe seven years since I last looked at Nate in terms of the source code, um, but I think they're they, you know, Hypernet is probably what I would use if I was going to do this. I think there's still, and this is interesting associated with my whole early narrative of not reinventing the wheel. I think there's still some interesting stuff out there that needs to be done, and um, although I follow these technologies, I think. There are certain optimizations that Noblate gives me currently. Now, that doesn't eliminate in the near term, and certainly this is really almost a call out to the hyperneat community, is, um, you know, send some missionaries, send some evangelists my way that also have coding chops, um, and that would certainly facilitate that a lot faster. Uh, but in the short term, it is going to be, 
expanding aspects of what exists currently in Noble Ape with the view that in the medium term, um, I think there's a PhD thesis there for someone. So um, if anyone is interested, please do get in contact. Hmm. Hopefully your audience can bring somebody in. Or your audience, even better. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be be fun someday to, like... I mean, the the whole thing with MetaSim is, like, we want to have open modules and we want to have closed modules, and... uh, It'd be cool to port aspects of Noble Ape into uh, not just a Java on on line, but like actual JavaScript without plugins, and just have it. Even we could even render it in 3D, and it'd be it'd be cool to you know have modules that like let, let, that's kind of what we're going for is is like the plug and play like as best as you can, but it never works out that way. You always have to configure stuff to be inst like. The, the biggest challenge we're going to have is instancing. It's it's a uh, like how do you have one person have an instance that covers like all these agents, all the terrain, all the planets. <laughs> I mean, it's but uh, yeah, like it'd be really neat just to see like who we can bring in and, and what we can port and have it displayable on the web. And um, so maybe- my my medium term goal with no polite. Um, and this is interesting because it will probably be two, potentially two parallel source tracks or potentially be a kind of cross-compiled source track, is actually probably to have a cloud Java series of instances of aspects of the current Noble Ape simulation with the view that these interactions would then be um, resources that people could call upon um, when they wanted to do what you're describing. And I think that model is certainly something that a, a few folk are currently thinking about associated with... There's this slowly maturing thing called cloud computing, um, which currently does have a kind of cost associated with it, but increasingly probably that will be even more minimalized. And within that, you have an existing set of ideas that kind of predate cloud computing, but you also have these simulations that have historically existed on a single single processor computer that then need to uh, hybridize in such a way that they can then be you know put out um, with a view that maybe certain components of versus all of it uh, would exist in the cloud, but at least some portion would exist in the cloud. And I think in that circumstance, it, you are subscribing to a service fundamentally. You're not. Um, you don't have to worry about instances or any of this kind of stuff. You just say, here I am, here's a URL that enables me to access, um, you know, rendering the Noble Ape environment in a predefined XML format. Um, just start feeding me the XML as it updates. And, you know, the service provides you back uh, exactly what you've asked. If you want just a pure, um, you know, visualization render then that's what you get if you want additional detail and you subscribe to another service uh and you know you start getting the ways of detailed information provided to you back in you know zipped xml or whatever uh, or alternatively you have an interactive component where you are running a simulation which enables you to interact with the information that you get back and you know provide additional dynamics and these kind of things but i mean my view is that these these kind of problems have already been solved in other domains. It's the trick is actually to take right. the simulations that we have and map them onto those other domains so they become fundamentally services that are usable in this fashion. That's the idea. Have services. They can talk with any sort of electronic exchange, JSON, <laughs> XML. and just mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Mm. 
Sweet. So I think uh, you're saying is Noble Ape will eventually be on the cloud comp- computing kind of way? So that's the aim. I mean, the aim yeah. in, the, in the near future is to create something which will move to, firstly, something that kind of complies with unit testing and all the additional methodology that basically needs to exist on these kind of things for stability. But then, yes, exactly as you mm. describe. And my view is actually that certain components lend themselves more to it than uh, other components. So, um, for example, there are certain aspects in the cognitive simulation or the social simulation or the narrative engine which are ideally, you know, farmed to external resources. Whereas, um, in potentially for an individual user, there are certain components which should still exist on the, you know, on the client, so to speak. So I think that's an interesting division, but that's still in the kind of early thought experiment phase for what I'm doing currently, so I can't make any any further claims about that. But I think it's the next logical step. I mean, for years, literally probably for the past five, six years, as I've worked with Intel and, and Apple, as they've used Noblade, it's always been this notion that what we'll have is like a home network that will have, you know, five or ten multi-core processor resources that would run aspects of Noblape. But now the model is very much that this exists externally, that the network that provides it to you is the is the internet and not your local area network. Uh, and that is a slightly different model. The speed aspects and these kind of things are still things I'm working with, but I'm relatively confident. I mean, what I've seen in the past, literally in the past few months, although this work has been going on for a couple of years, I've just seen it in the past few months, associated with the optimizations in compiler technology made me very, very hopeful, actually, that a lot of the stuff will be available and easily accessible in, in cloud computing, you know, in the next few years, to the point where it's worth actually investing the time and energy now to start <laughs> moving the stuff out there with the view that, um, you know, it, it, irrespective, I mean, the history... The thing that is kind of irrespective of the kind of novelty and emergence aspect, there's been a kind of fascinating history of computation thing that has happened with Noble Ape in parallel to all of this. So, I mean, in 2003, Apple, um, a couple of engineers initially, but then it propagated through areas at Apple, started using Noble Ape associated with their processor optimization. They had this eight brain cycles per second that they used. Mm. But in parallel to this, I also started thinking associated with, well, how do I change Noble Ape for the next generation of processor architecture and the next one? And it was always a kind of um, interesting relationship which forced me into thinking in different ways about simulation and forced me to recode multiple times. I mean, I'm, I'm currently recoding everything mm. again, <laughs> but this is like, you know, in some sense, the fifth iteration some sense nearly the 10th iteration of recoding these same ideas just to yeah. move them into a different kind of processing. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating what is available currently in terms of just the raw power. And it really comes back to us as simulators to start thinking about our simulations as how we can fully utilize this power in a, you know, in a, in a productive sense. Yeah. And I think uh, because cloud computing in a way, uh, you, you pay for what you use. So if there's more users, somehow if you can recoup that cost mm. from the users and, you know, if there's more interest in it, then they sort of pay for the extra cloud computing that's needed. So exactly. it's kind of self-feeding. Yeah, I mean, I think the notion of uh, both self-benefit and philanthropy become very interesting in these circumstances. So, for example, you may have an interest in a particular area of simulation where you can self-fund your... Right, yeah. 
But then it may be, then you need to go out and pitch it. And my view, actually, and I think this will happen in the near term, in fact, I'm relatively confident of this, is that there will be low to no cost clouds coming very hmm. soon. I think what's happening, I mean, I've been following solar processing technology and low power processing technology for seven odd years. And there are emerging communities that have existed now for about five years that have offered no, aside from very basic maintenance costs, hmm. they have solar infrastructure sufficient to run relatively complex farms and uh, provide it for, um, you know, fractions of cost. You also then have the kind of grand scalability. I mean, you have what Amazon, you know, offers currently. And yep. um, so it is an interesting space. I mean, in the future, I would hope, and here maybe five, ten years, that I would have a, a solar processing bank that I could run at near to no cost. The only cost would be associated with network potentially. But even that, I think there are ways that you can vastly lower the cost because there's the, what will happen in the future, well, through traffic is already a commodity. So my sense is that there is some way that you can harness through traffic to net zero cost as well. Although I'm still working, I'm still, this is all abstract thought, but I think there's a way to actually get to virtually no cost cloud computing, which then could potentially expand based on these kind of simulations, but it's still I'm still working out the the math. And there are other people who are doing the same thing. I mean, my view is that this is this is something that will no doubt um, you know just appear as you know no cost operating systems, no cost application software. All these things have eventually come out because the cost model has moved. And I think even though you're still dealing with electrons fundamentally here. There's still a lot of free electrons out there, and it's just finding ways of harnessing them. But yeah, it, it will be an interesting thing, and I think the network is part of that. I mean, the network is basically the final cost piece, aside from you know the cost of these machines and what have you. But even those components are being sufficiently brought down. That um, yeah, I, it, it's going to be very interesting in the future how this how this pans out. Yeah, I mean, storage will always cost somewhat, though. I mean, that's... but storage is less important. I mean, the thing—the thing that interests me about storage is that if it's just part of the computer, I mean, the, the physical machine may have some cost associated with it, but the cost of that is is always coming down. True. So there is some. There is some. I don't know. I mean, I've I've always been interested in the potential of. Um, like using not the absolutely most current, but the slightly under most current computation, the kind of stuff that, you know, large companies would be getting rid of anyway, is that kind of tier in terms of um, physical computation storage, this kind of thing, cost reduction. And I think there's probably some interesting model in there. And also, in parallel to this, obviously, you have the various um, non-profit structures of every country, so I think within the non-profit structures, which is government, <laughs> fundamentally on some level, um, <laughs> you there are methods to actually kind of explore the space as well. I'm yeah, I'm just thinking of it coming from the perspective of if there were a game, like uh, I mean, I have friends who've worked on Google Maps and like a, like a single suburb in Paris is like a single petabyte, and like if what, what if you want to have like scalability for like a huge number of users, you want to save information about like the worlds that they're creating and like the inhabitants of those worlds like 
the storage costs go up astronomically and getting like the tier. <laughs> but that's, that, that's fundamentally, that, that's fundamentally a topological compression problem. Yeah. I mean, what you get through that, the fact that Google, Google has different, Google has different needs with maps than you have in a simulation environment. Google has a need to service uh, mobile devices quickly in terms of their tiling strategy with, with very minimal processing between getting the map information and rendering it on, um, you know, your Android device or iPad or what have you. Um, so their needs are very different to a game simulation creator, although they, they could be in parallel. If you were looking to minimise cost and minimize or maximise your productive use of space, you would try to reduce these kind of constraints in such a way that there would be trade-offs. And Google's trade-off is not in any way associated with compression with this information because they right. have a virtually limitless um, supply of, uh, of servers. So I think you you create the constraints and implement the software accordingly. And I think it's an artificial conclusion to say because Google takes so much space for a suburb in Paris, so do you know, simulators. The, there's an interesting notion here of shared information, which I think is absolutely fascinating in the concept of simulation, that when you have either in the cloud or on multiple users, multiple clients, mm-hmm. information can exist in a way where it doesn't have to be centrally stored. And that in and of itself creates cost savings. So if you have a game and you have a certain number of people connected to that game, why would you utilize, aside from massive failure, which basically you you can create solutions to as well, mm-hmm. there's very limited benefit on you maintaining vast quantity of save state information on a server if you are if you are mindful that at least two of the participants need to be interacting in order to have a game environment. And in a simulation context, this is very interesting in that you, you come into um, the kind of NoSQL database modeling principles in this as well, right. where you, it, it, is, it, is really, it is really fascinating stuff. But I, I would say the kind of problems that you're looking to solve through this can be answered within your you know, simulation software as well. Yeah, so it's, uh, we're, we're playing with Mongo a little bit. Um, it's <laughs> the compression and like finding ways to like reduce redundancy or have stuff not exist. I mean, the, the, the data ex- is so large because like we already have this, we have the planet and we're, it's encapsulating the entire planet as opposed to like a planet that you haven't fully explored that kind of only needs to render the street that you're looking at when you're on that street and then kind of gets, yeah. So it's like the compression is there. I've also kind of wondered about, you know, just like peer-to-peer networks or like the Berkeley uh, Boink distributed mm-hmm. computing platforms mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, like in terms of like a business model, like if you, like you can, I was, that, that's, it's a very, that's a separate discussion altogether. But if, if there was some way users can either buy into the system or they can offer up their resources for like, like the, in the same way that Bitcoin generates, uh, hashes and encrypted currency, like you could have uh, someone generating just using their computer or a a farm and and they could be using that to generate income within your economic framework, whether it's game currency or or you could always have a game currency to like a a simulation, like 
a Bitcoin where instead of denoting like a specific encryption key, like it would, it it would be a tied tied to like modeling something somewhere, you know, and that way people could earn slight, they could earn credit just by offering up their resources that are available. So circa a couple of years ago, and I know the environment has changed, I was contacted by a couple of separate startups that were in the um, kind of social gaming space. And they were both profitable. They were profitable in different ways. There's some division associated with blatant advertising and in-game purchases. But mm-hmm. there is, and I've talked about this, I talked about this at the ALAF conference, actually, there is... Um, I don't know what the market is currently for these kind of games, but historically there was certainly a market for self-sustaining and revenue-positive environments that had both advertising and in-game purchases. I'm not a huge fan of ads. No. I'm moderately sympathetic to in-game purchases if they (laughs) maintain the development of the game, although they can drive it in a very particular direction as well. Yeah, I don't think I'm super sold on, you know, like, I I feel like adding content and having DLC, like I, I sort of imagine a system where there's like built in embedded con like contracts where if we wanted to use noble ape within our, like we would tie it into our medicine and then we would create a game. So it'd be an engine with modules and every module has a person attached to it. And that module might link or like be based on like research that's been done over the, like the last 20 years and so maybe anyone who's been involved will have a small percentage cut, and it's just like a distributed contracting thing where, like, somebody goes into a market, like, anybody could use our our, our MetaSim kind of uh, system. It'd be like a game engine with all these things. They, they could make their own experience, their own game, their own world. They could market it. They could they can set the price on it. And then um, when they do... They use our services. We get a, we get it pays pays the service, and then a sliver of that could pay the the maintenance of a small company to run it, and then some percentage of that would act of, of the remaining would actually extend and distribute to all the modules that were used, all the code base, and um, all the game assets, and then even further, like you could have tiny just like. I mean, even if it's just like five to ten bucks from like a whole like like mil- millions of dollars spent on a game, um, going towards a researcher who did something ten years ago, like it, it's still a, it could accumulate and build sort of like a passive sustainable income. I, it's just sort of I don't I don't know how realistic that is, but it's it's just sort of like the idea I've been thrown around, and uh, I like it kind of. If it it defeats the point of like closed versus open source, if you can guarantee a way to bring income to open source developers, but still, I mean, it's just I'm just putting it out there. That's that's kind of what I've been looking towards, and like I'm really open to critique or like anybody uh, listening to this podcast if if they know like or if if they want to critique it or like offer you know better better suggestion. You know, there like, are there are a number of problems to what you've described. Um, I think the whole notion of actually going back and giving social benefit to people that have been historical contributors has never actually yielded... I mean, the rip-off is considerably easier than actually going back and giving financial 
and the the ability to go back and actually find these people or to get a sense of this. I mean, unfortunately, you know, this is this is the kind of, on some regard, it's the idealistic what intellectual property should be all about in the capitalist system, just so far removed from what it actually is. But there is also an element. Um, what are they called? Is a South Park narrative associated with? I think they're called the Underpants Elves or something, where. <laughs> They 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 gather all the underpants. You know, it's like a, you know, get the underpants. B, you know, create an underpants pile. D, make a million dollars. There's no connection between the pile of underwear and the million dollars, other than this kind of narrative where they end up with people making a million dollars. The the devil in these things is very much in the details, um, and. I think the problem with regards to open source as it has been historically, and I've, I've typically been, because I've developed Noble for such a long period of time, very much open source, um, had two substantial companies use Noble And through that process, I got a, I think, a 20% discount on a Mac Mini. I mean, <laughs> I still had to pay my money for it. So, uh, historically, I've been very, very, not necessarily negative or jaded, but, you know, along those lines, associated with open source. And then I got my current job, which in large part was because I had worked with Apple primarily over such a long period of time and kept them really happy over this period of time, even though it was to absolutely no financial benefit to me, a certain amount of street cred, but no financial benefit. And now I'm in a position where I'm actually gathering financial benefit from that process at the same time in a company that is progressively open sourcing, you know, large components of its, um, um, you know, server infrastructure more than anything. But yeah, there is a really strange fundamental disconnect with open source that really a lot of it is very much in this kind of underpants elves narrative where there is no direct connection between spending your life toiling in code and actually eating and living in a home. (laughs) Um, And irrespective of what people say, you can sell services, you know, all this kind of nonsense is never the case. I mean... I think really the two or three or four or five people that cashed in on, you know, Linux company stock and this kind of stuff, I've met people that have worked on, like, original contributors to Vi and Emacs. They're not wealthy people. The open source model gave them no cash. If if there's anyone listening out there, young folk, the thing toiling away for years in open source will lead to any degree of uh, social and financial stability, this is not the model uh, for this. And I don't actually think there is an honest, visionary, this is what intellectual property is all about model that will get anything that you have outlined through the structure that you've outlined it. Um, I don't necessarily want to be vastly negative of this, but I want to say that there are models of smaller grandeur that could at least, you know, navigate some form of of sustainability, but they all probably involve working with large faceless companies and a variety of other kind of ethically questionable components to them. But independent of that, I'm going to have to, um, you know, wrap, wrap the recording up. Um, my listeners typically can, can tolerate a couple of hours, (laughs) but they are typically limited to that. And also I I have a, a bunch of, of books that I have to lug to uh, a charity as well. I'm downscaling my, my book, um, bibliophile have it currently too. Um, so 
I, I'd just like to conclude, if I may, by sure. saying that um, I would want to... I mean, I've historically done these kind of formalised and somewhat informal interviews of artificial life folk, historically um, long-term developers of artificial life. But I think the real need now is to bring those folk back into the conversation with people such as yourselves. Right. I've tried haphazardly to do this in recent months, uh, recent years even, and had less of a success primarily because a lot of these people that I've interviewed historically have gone on to other things. Some of them aren't, through the work they've done, able to continue to work on their long-term projects, which in and of itself I think is is another topic for another day. But what I would like to do is reach out to your community, reach out to the Reddit community, if there are people out there that want to have these kind of conversations in a recorded form, in a publicly accessible form, um, maybe with, um, you know, pseudonyms, um, I'm more than receptive to host these kind of recordings on a periodic basis and put the audio out there. At the Sane Life conference, I did meet a group of academics, particularly uh, a, a couple of folks in Poland, who said to me that the recordings were really critical for them and their understanding, and I would hope also that it would be important for folks to kind of contribute back into these recordings. So I wanted to kind of refloat this idea in this conversation um, that uh, folks should get in contact with me, Tom, T-O-M, at N-O-B-L-E-A-P-E, as in uh, noble person, only noble ape, dot com, um, if you want to do more of these recordings, and certainly if the Reddit community um, wants to get involved as well, I think there's a lot of legacy history here that's really important in terms of not reinventing the wheel, but at the same point also giving kind of contributive efforts to a lot of these historical projects, and maybe in some of the cases some of these historical projects are open source, they just don't have any current developers, and they could become very interesting and very vibrant and very much in the kind of contemporary computing sphere as well if they had folks who were interested in getting involved actively participating. So, Tom's, it's been a pleasure chatting. Do you, do you have any final words you'd like to throw out there? I, I would say thank you for the critique on the on the, the business plan thing, but uh, yeah, definitely I I've noticed I'm I'm I don't really have the history that you do that open source can be a, a not a time pit that doesn't reward, but um, that that's kind of the the question that I was like trying to tackle, and so just uh, if anyone has ideas on how to keep a project open source and also drive sustainable income and create a massive scalable uh, simulation like what we've been talking about. Um, that's that's kind of the, the, the holy grail we're, we're looking for. So uh, I appreciate uh, both of you guys' times. We're, we're the the, troi- uh, the Tom Troika. That's <laughs> been a pleasure. The axis of evil Toms, yes. <laughs> Thomas, do you have anything to, to, to finish the conversation? Uh, I just uh, hope that more people are getting going to get involved and somehow we, you know, think of new ways of getting through this open source kind of being able to do this for a living in the future. I mean, I think if we get enough minds in this, then we'll think of a solution that's fair and that works and that, and that people that are using these services are also not feeling like they're like current games where you have to buy all those DLCs and, and, you know, flares to, to make the gaming experience kind of better, but, you know, to something that works, basically. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I, I remain jaded, but we'll at least continue to record <laughs> the conversations and put them out there. It's been an sure. absolute pleasure. And again, thank you both for your time and the chance to chat today. Okay, thank All you. Right. Have a good afternoon, both of you.